It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. We've all been there. You have a question about your credit card, you call the number for help, and can't get a hold of anyone. If you only had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. So I'm the kind of person who cannot throw away a book. I need some kind of rehab treatment. Because when you can't throw away a book, you end up with all these books that you really didn't want. So nobody give me a book today. Because I tell you, if you give me a book, I cannot throw it away. So I had this book. It ended up on my desk. I'm not even sure how it ended up on my desk. Um, It was called Writing My Wrongs. And it was on the desk. I moved it from one end of the desk to the other desk. I moved it, and then I moved it, and I say, okay, one day I'm going to read that book. And then about, okay, I'm not going to read that book today. I'm going to read it when I go on vacation. I'm going to read the book. So I kept moving it around and moving it around. I was a little intimidated by the cover, because on the cover was this big black man. He was big, and he had a lot of tattoos. He was all tatted up. And on the cover, it said that he'd been in jail for, mur- for murder. So I thought, well, he's a murderer. He's, <laughs> he's tattooed up. He's big. He's scary. I don't know if I want to read that story. Anyway, I kept moving the book from place to place. And finally, when I was ready to move from Chicago, I was like, am I going to pack up the book or am I going to read the book? I think I'm going to read the book. So I started to read the book, read the book, opened the book with a lot of judgments about what this man would be and what this story would be. And I quickly changed my mind and my heart. When I spoke to him on Super Soul Sunday, because I was like 60 pages in and said to the producers, I got to get this guy for Super Soul Sunday. Not only am I reading the book, I now want to talk to him. When I spoke to him on Super Soul Sunday, he told me uh, before we started, because before I do any interview that is important to me, I started doing this back in 1989, I asked the person, tell me what is your intention? And I do that so that when we sit down, we are clear about what that person wants and what I want. So our agendas are clear. So the person knows that I'm not out to get them, I'm out to have them win. I'm out to have them say whatever it is they want to say and what they intend from their heart. So I do intentional interviews. So I asked Shaka Senkor, I said, Shaka, 
tell me, what is your intention? And he said, my intention is to leave this interview and let people know what I believe. And I believe that humans by nature are redeemable. And I really want people to come away with a perspective about what redemption looks like. And today, Shaka Sankor is a best-selling author. He is a teacher. He is a mentor. He is living proof that redemption is possible. Redemption is possible. And I know that when people hear his soul story, something really powerful happens. We had a deep, deep, deep connection going into that interview and came out of that interview as real, real friends. So his session is called Things I Learned in Prison That You Can Apply to Your Own Life. He has a lot to teach us. My friend, Shaka Sankor. Good morning, good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Wow. Beautiful, beautiful audience. 2012, received a fellowship at MIT Media Lab. 2013, I began to teach a class at the University of Michigan. 2014, my TED talk was named one of the top talks of the year. 2015, I was named the innovator of the year by Manchester University. And just last month, my memoir became a New York Times bestseller. Now, why does this all matter? It could be that I'm bragging, which every now and then is kind of cool for your ego. <laughs> Stroke that ego a little bit. But it matters because on June 22nd, 2010, I walked out of prison after serving 19 years. Now, I've often joked that walking out of prison after two decades was the equivalent of Fred Flintstone walking into an episode of the Jetsons. <laughs> when I went to prison, there was no internet, there was no smartphones, there was no laptops. I mean, our cell phones was like this big. <laughs> and so I came home, some of y'all laughing, I seen some of y'all on the flip phones on y'all way in here. I see y'all over there. But when I came out, I realized that it was deeper than just coming back to a new world. I realized that I had learned some very powerful lessons that were applicable to everyday life. And some of these are lessons that we all have known for years. But for me, it was different. Because now I was in a space where I can apply them in real time. One of the most powerful lessons I learned was about forgiveness and what forgiveness looks like in action. To me, forgiveness 
is the gift that we give to ourselves. But more importantly, it's the grace that we extend to others. Did you know that it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Cardon, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meave. Plus, you can help to support college access and student success when you donate online or round up in-store to APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash! Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies' splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Six years into my incarceration, I was extended the grace of forgiveness. It came in the form of a letter that was sent to me by the victim's family. Now imagine, if you will, I was 25 years old, I had six years in, and a long time to go. I was in the worst state. I was incorrigible, I was getting in a lot of trouble in prison, I didn't want to accept responsibility or accountability, and I was completely miserable. And I got this letter, when I started reading it, it made me even more miserable. Because for the first time in my life, I had came face to face with my worst moment. The letter opened by saying, do you know who David is? But if you didn't know, David is the man that you killed. He was a father, he was a love son, and he was a husband. And as I read those words, it basically crushed my spirit. And I wanted to put the letter down. But something told me to continue reading. And so I continued to read the letter. And when I got to the bottom, it said, despite all of the pain you have caused our family, I forgive you. And more importantly, I love you. Now, that was a lot to take in, considering at the time that I was this street-toughing, hardened guy from the hood who had never felt love, compassion, or empathy for myself and others. But there was something about those words coming from somebody who I had devastated and hurt that wouldn't go away. But it wasn't a quick fix. It would take years before I was mature enough to accept and appreciate and value those words. But one of the things that I realized through the process about forgiveness is that it's just that. It's a process, and it takes time. But I also realized that we're worthy, and that once we become visible in how we see ourselves, we become available and vulnerable in our willingness to accept forgiveness, but also to extend it, our world becomes that much better. Now, having got through that process, I evolved, I ended up getting out of prison, and I thought that that chapter of my life was closed. 
But just a few weeks ago, while speaking to a group of youth, I got an emergency email that I needed to respond to. And it happened to be an email from the victim's wife. So 20-something years later, when I thought that I had moved on, she asked, could I give her a call? So out of respect and out of courtesy, I gave her a phone call, and the first thing she said is, I forgive you. She had held on for all those years the desire to tell me that she forgave me in a very personal way. And it was, again, it was a reminder that forgiveness is a process and that we're constantly growing it. So that was one of the first and most important lessons I learned. The second lesson I'm going to share with you is about authenticity. Now think about it. We live in a society where we always told to keep it real. Y'all hear that phrase a lot? Even in your little emojis, it's like 100. <laughs> 100. And when you're trying to really get that truth from, you send about five of them 100. It's like 100, 100, 100, 100. Feel me, feel me. But in reality, we haven't really gave ourselves full permission to be our authentic selves because the world is constantly telling us what we should be as opposed to what we could be. It's telling us how we ought to be instead of who we really are. But in order for the forgiveness to sink in for me, I had to get down to the grit, to the grime, to the rawness of who I truly had become. So in 1999, I ended up in solitary confinement on this particular stretch. Turned out to be four and a half years. And I remember sitting down there and I asked myself this question. How did you go from wanting to be an honor roll scholarship student to serving out your most promising years in solitary confinement? And in the midst of asking that question, I received this letter from my son. My son was around 10 years old at the time. And he sent me the letter that as an incarcerated man, I dreaded. In his letter, he said, Dear Dad, Mom told me that you're in jail for murder. Please, Dad, don't kill. Jesus watches what you do. Now, as a father and as a man, that was the first time in my life that I thought about the fact that my child was going to grow up to see me as a monster. And the weight of that reality made me step back from the prison savvy, the street toughness, and really look at my true self. And I said, I'm not a monster. I was a little boy that made a poor decision on a night in the midst of the most chaotic time of my life, but also made a promise 
And that promise was, I will live my life moving forward in a manner that will honor my son and his wish to have me as a father. And in order to do that, I had to strip down everything that I had accepted in terms of my own identity. So when you grow up in the streets, you know you're a thug. So you adapt that swagger. You know you're a goon. When you're on the prison yard, you're the yard boss. All these different masks I wore. And none of them would allow me to be the father and the man I was capable of being unless I was willing to strip them off. And so I began to shred them through writing. And I began to write my way back to my authentic self. And I began to realize that the man or the male that I was at the time was really a broken little boy with accumulated years of mass hurt and abandonment. And as I began to repair these things, it made me think about the world that we live in and how we see ourselves. And I just have a question. I want you to think about this question. When is the last time you got fully naked? I'm not talking about like this morning when you was getting in the shower <laughs> or whatever you was doing this morning that required nakedness. <laughs> I'm talking about I'm talking about when is the last time that you have been completely honest and true with yourself? No makeup, no weave, no judgment. <laughs> but that honesty, that rawness, that allows you to grow and blossom into the fullness of your being. It's one of the things that we don't do enough of. But I guarantee you that when you embrace it, life gets so much better. Because it's nothing like being able to be true to yourself and know that as you're navigating through life, it's based on your own moral compass, your own spiritual principles, and your own character values. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank. Some things should be boring, like banking. Boring is safe and reliable. You don't want your bank to be entertaining. Entertaining is for podcasts with inspiring celebrity guests, not banks. PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is the service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Inc. PNC Bank, National Association, member FDIC. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, 
Michelle Obama to reparations. There's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. The fourth thing I learned that I want to share is the power of transformation. It's the ability to emerge from the cocoon of spiritual, mental, and emotional immaturity into your full, actualized self. Now, when I was having all these epiphanies while I was in solitary confinement, I knew that they would mean nothing until I got released, until I got put to the test, until I was given the opportunity to challenge the things that I said I now believed in. And so, in 2004, after four and a half years in the most deplorable, dehumanizing, degrading conditions known to mankind in our world, I walked out of solitary confinement. One of the things I, pr I promised the guys in solitary confinement, if I ever got out, that when I walked out, I was going to walk out with a George Jefferson straw. So I like Lily, <laughs> out this piece, sir. But I did that because I wanted them to know that I was moving on up into the new me. Thank you. Thank you. So when I got out, my status on prison, and just to be clear, I was not like a model prisoner, so I ended up solitary so much. Um, so the expectation was that I would be the old me, that whenever conflict arose, I would respond in a way that wasn't healthy. You know, the yards of prison is a very violent environment, and, you know, might makes right. So when I get out, I knew that there was going to be challenges. And one day, true to what I knew about the nature of the environment, I was met with a challenge. There was a guy who came to prison. He was a community activist. He came for some trumped-up charges. And I was given a responsibility just by virtue of my senior status on the yard to ensure that he had, you know, he was safe wherever he went in the prison and that he was respected. So I'm escorting him to child. Child hall, that's this little place where they serve this, this nasty food. Um, but I'm escorting him, and we're standing in line, and the guy literally just jumps through and cuts the line. Now, in prison, that's enough to get you stabbed, or at minimum, hit upside the head, whatever the case may be. And there was that moment when I felt disrespect, not to my authentic self, but to the prison mask that I had wore for so many years. And I was like, how do I respond? Because everybody's looking in the kitchen, everybody's in the child looking. How's he gonna respond to this? This is big shock on the yard. This is, you know, 
the guy? How does he respond to this? And what I did is I paused and I looked at him and I saw the little boy in him. And I told myself that transformation comes when we can see the broken child in every person we encounter. So every, from moving forward, every time I find myself in conflict, I always made sure that I looked at the broken child inside the person because that was their authentic self. And I reminded myself that if I only responded to their authentic self, I can only respond out of kindness, empathy, and compassion. And so that lesson was so powerful for me because when I got out, I encountered all type of resistance to the reality of where I came from. But as I navigate this journey, and it's still a journey, I've only been out five years, I realized that when you see the child in people, it gives you permission to see the child in yourself, and it creates space for real transformation, not only in who we are as human beings, but in the spaces that we occupy. Now this final lesson, or thing, jewel of wisdom that I learned, is about innovation. And to me, innovation is to use the raw materials of our circumstances to create the life and the world that we envision. I want you to think about this. All of us didn't grow up to be who we are right now today. So y'all remember back in the day when the TV would go out and you like grab that hanger, slap that aluminum foil on that boy, <laughs> figure out how to get them stations in. Or I know some of y'all may have like that, that uncle who his solution to everything is duct tape. <laughs> You'd be like, the baby broke his leg. Duct tape that boy up and put him back out there. <laughs> we grew up in a world of innovation. And prison is one of the most innovative places that you can imagine because we're always having to create in order to try to at least live some type of quality of life. So very briefly, here's a couple of things that we did. We would create what's called a fish line made out of socks and a toothpaste tube, and we would slide it up and down the tier in order to retrieve or share information. It was basically like our low-level, our low-tech email system. <laughs> and then we also would create things like tattoo guns out of tape player motors and ink pens and uh, good tire string, and then we would like illegally get tattooed, and I'm a little bit tatted up. All of them were done illegally in like prison cells. Um, but inside prison, that's not called innovation. It's called breaking the rules. And I had this epiphany when I got out as part of my fellowship at MIT Media Lab. I created these design challenges for some of the smartest, most innovative students in the world. One of them was the tattoo gun I mentioned, one was the fish line I talked about, and then I challenged them to make a lighter out of two batteries and a piece of wire. We were there for two hours, and out of the five design challenges that we created, they couldn't get one of them right. In fact, we blew out the power at MIT. I was like, yes, <laughs> we did it. We made it, we made it happen. But that was such an important thing because we live in a society where we're constantly throwing people away. 
We're constantly discarding people's humanity. We throw away genius and we discard all of the amazing, innovative things that happen in some of the most unlikely places. And so the lesson for me was take the principles of innovation and use those to create the world that you envision for yourself. And so those are my lessons. They are life lessons, what I call my life blessings. It's been an honor to share them with you. I hope that you can share them with others. Thank you for your time. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. Have you ever wondered what the stars have to say about your favorite artists and writers? Listen to Stars and Stars with Issa, where I, your host and astrologer, Issa Nakazawa, read and interpret astrological birth charts of luminaries like W. Kamau Bell, Gia Tolentino, and so many more. You'll discover how astrology can unlock fascinating insights about these stars. And who knows, maybe you'll learn a little bit more about yourself. Listen to Stars and Stars with Issa wherever you get your podcasts. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.